0: With that said, we are going to continue in our series today, The Invitation, and we're looking at the things that Jesus is inviting us to participate in as a community, as followers of him, as the church. And today we're going to be actually looking at the invitation to commune with God through prayer. I think there's a lot of confusion around what prayer is. And I want to just begin by saying that the disciples of all the things that they could have asked Jesus to teach them to do, the thing that they didn't say is, Lord, teach us how to preach. They didn't say, Lord, teach us how to practice solitude or silence. They didn't say, Lord, teach us how to serve. They said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And I think that prayer actually leads to all those other things. Prayer has to be the source for all those other things. When we Begin to commune with God, we see that it's important that there's times that we're alone with him. When we commune with God, we recognize that it's a conversation, which means we also have to listen to him. When we commune with God, we see that his, he's a God who has a heart for the lost, and it pushes us into service to the world. When we commune with God, we begin to see that how much he loves us, and we cannot rest until we communicate that to others. That's why Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. Christ crucified. And so I want us to be thinking about prayer because I think around the topic of prayer is, is often this overwhelming sense of failure, this overwhelming sense that I am somehow failing God, that I am disappointing him. And some of you have come in today and you're like, I haven't prayed all week. Maybe you've never prayed at all. Maybe you don't even know what I'm talking about because you don't know Jesus. That's okay. Okay. We're glad that you're here because we believe that no one comes to Jesus unless Jesus draws them. And I believe that there is a God who loves us and is drawing us to Himself. And prayer is not wrestling with His reluctance. It's grabbing a hold of His willingness. But I think it's important that we qualify what we mean by that. Because often we think of prayer as our ability to bend God's will to ours. And that is not what prayer is. Prayer is God communing with us in such a way that our will becomes transformed by His will, that we are able to endure the challenges of existence because we have a God who is nearer to us than we are to our own thoughts, a God who is with us in the midst of our brokenness and our suffering, a God who has entered into that brokenness and made it it His own and that's why i think it's important for us to understand that to begin to think about prayer i think there are two key principles that need to be the foundation for everything that we do when it comes to prayer and that is that prayer is driven by from god's side radical grace his movement toward us as a good father through the sending of his son that god's love comes down to earth that we cannot climb the ladder to God in our own efforts. We can't seek God in our brokenness unless God first intervenes, unless he precedes that movement, unless he draws us and woos us by his love and reveals the truth of who he is. That's why Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. So we need radical grace, but the other side, we need childlike faith. God's movement of radical grace should draw out of us a childlike faith in that good God. If we can get the first slide up, I want to just share a passage from Jesus Himself Uh, in Matthew chapter seven, verses seven through eleven. Jesus said this. He said, "Ask, and it will be given to you; seek, and you will find; knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives; the one who seeks finds; and the one who knocks, it will be open." Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Now, this is a profound example of a text that is often taken out of context. And I think it's important to know that this text comes on the heels of Jesus himself saying, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these other things shall be added to you. He says to ask for things in His name. To ask for something in His name means that it's in accordance with His character, with His purposes, with His plans, with His personhood. In fact, our inability to pray uh, should cause us to reflect on the fact that when we pray, when we pray from a biblical perspective, when we pray prophetic prayer, what we are doing is we are praying to the Father through the lips of Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Now, I want to just begin here, even even before we jump into this text, because this creates a lot of confusion around what is our freedom as God's children uh, when it comes to what we talk to Him about. Do we bring our problems to Him? Of course we do. But I think that this is important for us to understand is that the reason the disciples asked, Lord, teach us to pray, is because we do not know how to pray. And I think that's important for us to understand. Listen to this quote from Karl Barth. I think it's a profound thought on prayer. He says, Is there a person who can rightly say, I can pray? I fear the people who want to say that are in truth the very people that cannot pray. And conversely, those who lament, I cannot pray, are the ones to tell, for this very reason, you are in truth very close to praying. Real praying is something that we cannot do, but something that happens, not on the basis of an ability, but because God has accepted us as His children. There is no art of praying. There is only the quite simple permission of the child of God. Making use of this permission is what you should do when you cannot pray. The great foundation, I think, of all sin played out in our lives comes from prayerlessness. Because prayerlessness is essentially believing that we somehow are in control of our own lives. That we don't owe our existence to anyone. That we shall be the ones who define and dictate how it is that we ought to live. But if we think of prayer as communication with a God who wants to make Himself known, who wants you to know Him the way that He knows you, then I think that there's a beauty that kind of comes out of this that is driven by this understanding that first and foremost, that God's movement toward us is the basis of our ability to enter into communication with him we don't talk with a God who is distant in fact one of the things that create makes a compelling case for the Christian faith is Christians weird practice of talking to a God that they can't see but what it communicates to the world is that the eyes of the soul the eyes of the the the, the gaze of the soul which is what tozer calls faith the gaze of the soul upon upon a present living saving God is is evidence to the world when we talk with a God who we believe is with us who actually will never leave us nor forsake us who comes to place his spirit within us so that we can begin to pray not by our own ability but by a trust in the Holy Spirit's ability to interpret our gibberish which is what most of our prayers if not all of them are on some level and that brings me a great amount of confidence it's a, it's a frustrating thing when you hear someone pray with a very eloquent man, in a very eloquent manner it's like professional god speak and like i mean think about how you talk with your spouse how you talk with your kids do you wax eloquence when you talk if you do then that's probably how you should pray if that's just how you talk i know a couple people like that but What God is looking for is not for you to be something that you're not. Jesus said, don't think you're going to be heard for your many words. No, he said, when you come to your father, know this, your father already knows what you need of. Come to him essentially like little children because he's your father because of his movement toward you in me. When Jesus is communicating the Sermon on the Mount, he is already looking through the cross toward the new reality, the new church, and the covenantal people that were birthed through through faith in his life, death, resurrection and ascension in the sending of his spirit which comes to us by faith and so here we have this reality of radical grace in order to pray we need god to actually move toward us reveal himself to us and and show us how we need his love to be the very thing that motivates our prayer And grace, as I've defined it before, is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. That's Paul Zoll's beautiful definition. That grace is love coming at you and it has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. Grace reminds us that God, that prayer is not wrestling with God's reluctance. It's grabbing a hold of its willingness. Grace reminds us that even when we are absolutely prayerless, God does not love us less. I took a trip to London with my son Henry last year, and I remember thinking before that trip that when we got on the plane, we were going to talk the entire flight, and we were going to have deep heart-to-heart talks. And, you know, my son's 17. I consider him not only my son, but a dear friend, uh, and I love to spend time with him. And we got on that plane, and we flew, and then we landed in London, and I realized that we maybe talked for five minutes because we had both probably watched three movies, played some games, read some books, what, took some, did some time sleeping. And, and do you think I was disappointed that he only talked to me for five minutes? I was just stoked that my son was next to me. I was just stoked that he talked to me at all. I didn't say when he finally talked to me, why haven't you been talking to me this whole flight? because he probably could have said the same thing to me. But I I think that this is the thing, is that God is a God who is continually speaking into his creation, but his voice is a still, soft voice. And prayer is about attuning our ears and our hearts to a God who is speaking his message of grace into this world, his world, that he is in the process of redeeming through the work of his son. But the still, soft voice tells us it's a voice that's like a whisper. And whispering is not something you do to strangers. If you come up and whisper in my ear and I don't know you, I will think that's creepy and I probably will step away startled. We whisper into the ears of our children. We whisper into the ears of our spouses, of those whom we love and have intimacy with. That is the, the still, soft voice. This, the whisper in the, in the stillness and the softness of the voice of God it speaks of a intimacy as well as proximity. The problem is, is that we live in a noisy world that has hidden His voice from us. we become too smart for our own good. And that's why it's not just about grace alone, God's movement toward us, but that grace sets us free to enter into communion with Him. And this is what we're missing out on when we don't take advantage of a God who is available. He's not disappointed in you. He loves you. He's disappointed. He hates sin. He hates whatever it is that robs Him of what He loves, which is you. But here's the thing, is that the Father is looking for children that simply turn to him in implicit trust and that's why we need childlike faith think about how children are children live with an unconscious faith there are a lot of divine like qualities to child likeness i actually wrote a message on faith like little children called faith like henry when henry was about five years old and and, and i just remember watching him and the way that he behaved, these certain things that he did that gave me so much insight into what real faith should look like. And the thing that you notice with children is that faith is unconscious. They don't even realize that they're exercising it. They're never doubting. We consider it gullibility, but really it's just implicit trust. They, they're, they're never skeptical, but they're always questioning. And it's faith. I mean, have you ever met a skeptical two-year-old? I mean, if you have a skeptical two-year-old, there's, there's possibly something fundamentally wrong with, I don't know what you're doing, but most two-year-olds are like, they'll, they'll question you. Like I've seen two-year-olds all the time that are like, I don't know you, I don't know, but it's not skeptical, like I just naturally believe the worst about everybody. That's not how little babies are. Uh, And Henry and Hattie both exerted a faith that wasn't aware of itself. I could tell Hattie when she was a little girl to climb up in that rotunda and jump off the balcony to me, and she would not even have hesitated. Fearlessness uh, that came from a faith, and it wasn't because she was fearless, it's because she believed that her daddy would do whatever it is that he said he could do. And i think that this is the the powerful picture of how it is that god wants us to come to him i was actually over um, at some dear friends with darcy uh, and we were praying uh, for the wife of our friend uh, and and the, she was just sharing with us there's a, a ton of just pain that she's going through and we wanted to pray for her and but they have a little two-year-old daughter and the whole time this couple is trying to share with us like the challenges and, and the struggle and the suffering that they've been going through due to this kind of physical setback. Uh, their two-year-old kept coming over to my leg and she, she would bring little books and she would set them on my knee and open them up and begin to try to get me to engage with her. And I, I, can't, I couldn't even resist. Darcy's like, like, babies are like little magnets for you. And like, I'm like listening to what's going on and then all of a sudden I'm just like, and then I start talking to her, and my wife would, like, grab my arm, like, hey. But then she did it to Darcy. Darcy, neither. She, n- nobody could resist that. You, like, this pure cuteness, sweetness, just all she wanted was engagement. She wasn't trying to be rude or disrespectful to her parents. She just believed that the right Thing to do was to engage with the person, and she it, she wasn't thinking. There was no menace in it. It was just an honest, simple desire to connect, and it was relentless. In fact, so relentless that eventually she came out naked. And then she had everyone in the room's attention. And then and she kept doing this, like naked, and we're like, it's like all this, like we're we're like dealing with like we're gonna pray. This is serious. And then you're like, how? C- and it's almost like God is even in that moment reminding us like, oh, he's good. And he is, I am, your daughter's amazing. Like, and that's the funniest thing I've ever seen. And we could not stop laughing. And then once she had our attention, then it was just like, It was like all all bets are off. Like she's just going for it. And then she turned around naked to us and put her hands on her hips and like doing this like at two. And I'm like, that's amazing. Look, who is this child? Clearly she's going to rule the world someday. But what I loved about it is it actually gave an incredible picture into the beauty and the simplicity of childlike faith. Because Jesus said, unless you come to me like little children, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. And I think that that childlike faith is, is that reckless abandon that... My Father is, the, is not a Father who rules His space, His throne with an iron scepter. But His grace is a grace that invites us to come boldly. That we have access to Him. That, that we have the ability to bring our needs before Him. To bring our supplications before Him. That we can have confidence in Him. And that the goal of our lives is to bring Him glory and He is glorified when we enjoy Him. And this is why Jesus said a little bit earlier, and this is what I want us to consider as we continue thinking about what it means to pray, pray is that with this, this step, that God moves toward us in radical grace and we're to move toward him in childlike faith, then what does it actually mean when Jesus teaches us how to pray? And what the first thing I want us to see when considering just the first couple of verses of the Lord's Prayer is that prayer for us means, means access. Access which brings about awe. Look what Jesus said. He said, when you pray, pray like this. He said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Notice that it begins simply Father. I like what Robert Farrar Capone says. He says, an opening that, as to me, speaks not of someone with whom we have, will have a relationship after certain pious exercises but of the one to whom we are already related by sonship. More than that, it suggests that for both the disciples and for us, that the sonship we have is precisely Jesus' own, that we stand before the Father in him. So when Jesus teaches us, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, when the disciples heard him pray, he talked about God in intimate terms. He utilized the title of Father in a new way that spoke of an intimacy that was available to God's children. And that intimacy is available to us because of what He has done for us. This is why Jesus says, "Abide in Me, and I in you." And why we don't see the phrase "sons and daughters of God," but we see that we have a standing before God based upon the sonship of Jesus. Now, women, if you think that that is sexist, I just want you to know that we're also called the bride of Christ. So it works both ways. In uh, the what the point of the text is. And it's actually really important to not mess with it because the point of it is that men and women are all one in Christ. We stand in Jesus' authority, in His covering. The Father sees us in our sinfulness and brokenness. This is the radical grace that is ours in Jesus. He sees us covered by the perfection of the Son. You don't have to be perfect. What you have to do is exercise a faith toward the one who is. That's why I always say faith is only as good as the object in which you place your faith. And the object in which we are called to place our faith is Jesus. It's not something, it's someone. And he is good, and he is perfect, and he is trustworthy. And when we place ourselves in him, we begin to find our access to the Father. We can enter into the same kind of relationship that he has that is found within the Godhead itself. And so I love this because it flows from the good news. This is so important for us. It flows from the good news that nothing that needs to be done hasn't already been done. See, this is one of the fundamental problems of prayer is that we believe that our right to come to God is dependent upon our performance, that I'm too sinful to talk with God. How could I come to a holy God but that's the thing is that the holiness of God uh, is, is not, does not mean that God is not capable of being in the presence of sinners. That's not what we see in Genesis through Revelation. Unless let's remember that what we celebrate at Christmas is the incarnation. The holy, perfect, sinless God's entrance into sinful humanity. That He is sovereignly free to do what He wants to accomplish what He plans to accomplish. And his plans are good and trustworthy. That God is the father of lights and in him is no darkness at all. And he chooses to actually bring redemption to the world by entering into the very fundamental problem that separated us from him to begin with. Now, this is the power of, of what it means for us to have access because too many people think that our access to God is dependent upon following some sort of set of moral rules. Like you have, you can... Talk more freely to God if you're not doing X, Y, and Z, and you are doing these these things. But that is primitive prayer, not prophetic prayer. Primitive prayer is driven by, it's the human drive to to offer things to a God that, that is unpredictable. It's driven by fear rather than by grace. Now, let me just say this that when we come, into the presence of a God who invites us freely and has actually already made a way through his son to come to say yes to Jesus is to say yes to a God who is by very definition a consuming fire and this is why I say access actually leads to a proper understanding of awe that awe is this idea that, yes, God is personal, that He is intimate, that He is available, that He is holy, but His holiness is actually revealed through His ability to enter into sin without being ruined by it. His ability to enter into it and deal with it once and for all. And the kind of awe, the kind of reverence, the kind of what we see in Scripture, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, is, is not a fear that causes us to run away from God, but it's, it's a fear of offending a God who is gracious toward us. It's the fear of offending one who loves us and on our worst day is crazy about us. But think about this, nothing pierces the heart more than the unfair reality of grace. When you do the dumbest thing you can imagine, you hurt someone so terribly You've experienced, uh, you've experienced and caused pain in a way that you're like, God can never forgive me for this. It's in those moments when God's grace comes in, it's almost unbearable that God would love us in spite of that. And I think what it does is it offends us because it says that God's love toward you is not based upon you or your performance at all. It's based upon who he is. And that offends our sense of of worth and identity because so much of who we are is wrapped up in the idea that I can be and do anything I put my mind to. And, and, And the love of God actually confronts that false reality and says that sin has actually crippled you in your ability to ever understand yourself. And that is why you need to understand that your access to me is because of what I have already done for you in my son. And that brings about an awe and a reverence. And this is why we can't just be casual It's there's a casualness in in our intimacy with Jesus that we have the ability to talk to him freely. And there is nothing that we can't share with him. And he can handle our deepest sadness and our greatest celebrations. He wants all of it. He doesn't want this or that part of you. Access to God means you have the freedom to be in communion with Him. But to be in communion with Him, proximity to God brings transformation to the life because he is, a, he is a fire, a holy fire, that begins to burn away everything that is unlovely in the Beloved. And sometimes being in that presence is painful. But it's a good kind of death. It's what I like to refer to as the good death. It's the ability to die the deaths that we need to die so that we can live in the power of Jesus' resurrection life. Access and awe is important for us to understand. And this is what Jesus is saying. When we pray, our Father, intimate, that is our position in him because of Jesus. Hallowed be your name. You are a holy God. You're the one who spoke and the universe leapt into existence, and yet you're the same one that cares about every minute detail of my life. How can that not bring awe? Which brings me to the second reality. Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done, which is this picture of surrender and supplication. Now, when we say your kingdom come, by nature, there is a surrender component to that. Because you can't say your kingdom come and still try to hold on to your kingdom. Because to say, Father, your kingdom come is to say my kingdom go. And isn't the very essence of the gospel is repentance. It's a change of mind about who's going to be God in your life. Isn't the essence of sin, it's not the little things you do wrong. The essence of sin is your continual desire to put yourself upon the throne of your own heart. You see, God is not compatible with self-sufficiency. This is faith, said Karl Barth, that I let Jesus be for me what I am not and cannot be for myself. You see, prayer is not bending God's will to mine, but coming into conformity to His will. One of the problems that I have actually... Uh, with, some, with certain components of the hyper charismatic movement is this idea that God is some sort of force to be wielded, that faith is some sort of force to be wielded. Faith is not what saves us. Jesus saves. It is our faith in Christ that saves. But does there, is there anywhere in Scripture that Christ promises a pain-free existence? And I think often prayer becomes this thing where God is, God, I'm going to pray that God heal me. And I need him to heal me because people told me that's what I should expect. And I want you to know that God does have the power to heal and I have seen him heal. But I also know that what Jesus teaches us to pray is your kingdom come, your will be done, which it means I trust you no matter what. I trust in your goodness and I trust that this is not the best there is, but the best is yet to come. And Jesus already told me that in this world, there will be difficulties. You will experience challenges. And that's why we need to continue to come to our father like little children. We trust him and we trust him. Think about how much that children don't understand and yet they continue to trust. That's why faith comes before understanding. And often when we're in the midst of a deep, difficult trial, I was actually sharing this with with the very friend I was praying for. When I was in my season of anxiety, I could not make sense of it. I knew that I couldn't handle it any longer. I knew that I needed God to deliver me from it. I was seeing doctors. I was, I mean, I was trying everything you could try. And the Lord kept me in it. He let me continue in it. I don't think He was responsible for it, but He definitely allowed it. And what God permits and what God causes is a mysterious theological quandary that I'm not interested in actually answering. I'm comfortable with the mystery. But I think that this is the thing that I know for sure is that after I came out of it, I realized the very reason that God did not answer the prayer in the way that I wanted him to is because he was trying to do something more important, which is to show me what his kingdom looks like. And his kingdom is about entering into other people's pain. And I did not know how to do that until I experienced my own anxiousness. I didn't know how to enter into other people's anxiety and depression. In fact, I was completely impatient with it and felt like it was due to a lack of faith. And then Jesus said, oh, let me show you their lack of faith. Let me give you craziness for just total anxiety where you're going to feel like you're losing your mind and I'm going to teach you how to have compassion. And I am grateful for it and I wouldn't exchange it for anything, although I'll be super mad at him if he ever brings it back to me again. Uh, but that, that's the thing is it's, it's teaching us. God knows he's a good father and he knows what's best for his children. And there are lots of things that we don't let our kids have because we know it's going to hurt them. And so I think that this is the power of when you say your kingdom come, your will be done, it actually speaks to even how we our surrender leads to proper supplication. And that that surrender is, is directly connected to weakness. And actually, weakness is the key to powerful prayer. You guys know that? His help is dependent on our helplessness. Do not be too strong for God. You can never be too weak for Him, but you can definitely be too strong for Him. I mean, I like what Romans 8 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. I like what Paul, when he had a thorn in his flesh, he prayed, God, remove this thorn. And God says, listen, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. The Spirit comes to teach and unveil to us the perfect heart of God. He in turn, I love this, actually translates for us and interprets our imperfect hearts back to God. That we have one who intercedes on our behalf in Jesus and in the Spirit that communicates the brokenness of our prayers. And this is why what God is looking for in our lives when it comes to His kingdom coming and His will being done what is the, what's the natural outcome of that? It's, it's on earth as it is in heaven. And this brings us to that place of confidence. Confidence and cooperation. Our confidence is in God's ability to do in us and through us what we cannot do for ourselves. Our confidence is that Jesus already knows that we are broken and bound by sin. Our confidence is like little children. My kids never question, and I think that obviously there are, I think when we talk about how do we see the divine-like qualities of childlikeness, of course there are, there are situations. I don't, I don't downplay the fact that there are many children that are forced to grow up way too young. But a child that's well cared for and taken care of in their home generally isn't worried about how they're going to eat their next meal even when things have been extremely tight, where Darce and I have wondered how we would pay for diapers. I remember a season like that when I was touring full time in music, um, which is a pretty good sign that you probably shouldn't be a touring musician. Um, <laughs> in case you were wondering, artists, you're like, my kids don't need diapers. I just need to be famous. Uh, <laughs> but I, I remember in that time, we still were able to provide a home where that, that was never anything Henry worried about it too. He was totally confident in our ability to provide for what he needed, and he didn't even think about it. It didn't cross his mind. There were no categories necessary, an unconscious faith. And I think that Jesus is looking for that same kind of confidence in us as we trust him. Our prayer life is actually driven by this idea that Jesus chooses to realize his purposes in the world, in collaboration with us as broken people. And I think one of the things that becomes difficult when we pray is that not only do we have this false idea that God doesn't hear our prayers if we're not holy, but we think that His prayers can't actually bring transformation to our lives in such a way that we are worthy of being used. But I I just want you guys to know, man, I kind of had a revolution like about probably 10 months ago, almost a year ago now, where I just realized uh, just the absolute tyranny of pressure that comes to someone who's a pastor in ministry. And I was just watching pastors just nosedive. Like, I mean, how many moral failings do we have to hear about pastors? And I realized because it is harder for a pastor to be honest than almost any people group because honesty demands that we actually live with a certain vulnerability where we're able to say, like, yeah, this week I'm really kind of struggling with faith. It's kind of scary As a, if your pastor says, I don't want to be your pastor. You're like, that doesn't like necessarily breed strong confidence in, in following. But let me just tell you, there are many times where I'm like, I do not want this job, Lord. Like, this is a crazy job. Like, I, look at me. Like, literally, like, no, I'm not joking, like, actually look at me. Like, I should not be a pastor, <laughs> like, ever. <laughs> but for whatever reason, God, according to His purposes and His will, does not line up with the logic of the human mind. Are we willing to do what it is He's called us to do, but are we willing to actually continue in a radical vulnerability where it doesn't scare us off from one another, but our prayer life becomes so so rich and vibrant, it's not that it produces perfect people is that it produces perfectly dependent people who recognize how broken they are and how much they need grace. What I want for our community is I want to be able to come to you and say, guys, I actually am in a season of anxiety again, and I need you to pray for me. Thank God I'm not, but I pray that we're creating the kind of atmosphere where that doesn't scare you away, but it actually is refreshing because The pastor, just like me, is just a normal person trying to figure out what it means to chase grace, or should I say, accept grace, because it comes to me when I don't deserve it, and it blows me away. But often, we don't even realize it's there because we don't take the time to actually look up and hear that still, soft voice. What did Bart say? When we feel like we can't pray, that's when we simply let out the little sigh the truest, the most honest prayer that one can ever pray is just simply, yes, Jesus, help. I think every prayer ultimately is a petition. It's a prayer, Lord, help me know your love. Lord, help me be a reflection of that love to the world. Lord, help me be what I can't be, Help. That's what makes Jesus a good savior, right? Is he's come to help us. That's why he calls the Holy Spirit the helper. Because he assumes what is true, but we often are too blind to see it. We need help. We can't do it alone. We need to be a people that recognize that there is a God who already knows how fragile, how broken you are. And why are we, why are we pretending that the, the, the essence of being a Christian is putting on some sort of moral code of conduct that somehow makes you feel better when you lay your head down on the pillow at night when in reality you're just as screwed up as everyone else because I think the church does a really horrible job where a pastor can say, well, I'm not sleeping around and I'm not cussing and I don't watch our films, but he's the most arrogant person you've ever met. Is that okay? Isn't it funny how the church has certain sins that they'll tolerate but not others? What if we just said, we are sinners saved by grace and the safest place to be as a sinner saved by grace is in the one who is sinless and took care of sin once and for all. And that's why we look to Jesus. And when you get close to Jesus and you recognize your position in Him, it is inevitable that the fire of His love will begin to actually cleanse you and turn you more and more into His likeness. But it's not done through some kind of effort. Every growth in Christian, in Christian living is driven by a foundation that it all has come and begun as a gift and ends as a gift. That is why Jesus is the beginning and the end of our faith. The author and the finisher. Even our faith in Him is ultimately a gift from Him. How bound are you in your sin? More bound than you probably ever want to admit. And this is why we need grace so that we can actually see His kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And it's not because you got your act cleaned up. It's because you, in all of your mess, cast yourself in dependence upon a God who is able to use broken vehicles like, like myself and you to share His love with the world. And what is compelling to the world is real vulnerability. Man, the church is writing books about vulnerability, talking about vulnerability, but Christians are the weirdly, weirdest people when it comes, especially American Christians. We are so horrible about being like what does vulnerable mean to you like vulnerable is not saying i'm having a hard time in my marriage like that's not vulnerable that's just normal that's just you talking you're just as guarded as you ever was like no vulnerability is really owning the fact that i am so much more scared so much more lost so much. More, I'm scared of the things that I think about when I think about the church. We're not willing to admit that we're struggling in our faith. We're often not willing to let people into our pain because we're embarrassed that our marriages aren't going as well as we thought they should. We're embarrassed that our parenting isn't as awesome as we thought it should be. We we we're we're embarrassed by the fact that we don't have the strength to share our faith with our coworkers, and and yet we put on these these clean moral fronts, and we concern ourselves with things that have nothing to do with us, when all along Jesus is saying, just be broken before me so that I can fill you with my love and my grace and transform you. I can't transform a pretense. If I'm sabotaging my career right now, it's worth it. Because grace is that good. Jesus says this, to His disciples. Paul reiterates it. We are God's fellow workers. Paul can say that and in the same breath say, Christ Jesus came to die for sinners of whom I am chief. And that's why I want you to understand that the goal of prayer is not God being a means to your fulfillment. The goal of prayer is that He Himself is our fulfillment as we give our lives to Him. The goal of prayer is His glory, and He is glorified when His children enjoy Him. And that's why Paul said, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in what? All circumstances. Which would mean what? All circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Let's pray.